Pentecost, a day to remember. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the sermon from the Feast of Pentecost, June 6, 2022, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost was truly a memorable day, especially for those disciples that received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Reverend Neville Jones looks at the context of when and where this happened, its relationship to Easter and where the disciples were gathered, as well as its significance for the spread of the gospel. Using Ezekiel's vision of the river of God, Neville offers a final reflection on the power and effect of the Holy Spirit and our calling to be part of it. Deacon John Arnold starts us off with a word of prayer. Today is the Feast of Pentecost, as well as Shavuot. On this day, God sent his spirit to dwell with his church. All of his church. We read early on that God sent his spirit on those who are in Jerusalem, and then later on the Samaritans, and then later on the Gentiles. But even on that first day of Pentecost, who is there? People from all nations, including people interested in God, who are almost certainly not Jewish from places like Rome. So he sent his spirit even on that day to his church, his entire church. So let us pray. Holy Spirit, sent by the Father, ignite in us your holy fire. Strengthen your children with the gift of faith and revive your family with the breath of love and renew the face of the earth through Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. Amen. We have praised God and we have even declared that we will love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. One of the ways that we do that, even as we mentioned at the beginning, is that we listen to his word. Yes? So we've worshiped God, we've told him how we feel, now we get to hear what God has to say. Our first lesson is a reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, familiar story, Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Babel. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and they settled there. They said to one another, come. Let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the whole face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do 
will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. And that is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second reading is taken from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. 
Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. The Gospel is taken from John, chapter 14, verses 8 to 17. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Before we look at the word for today, let's pray. Thank you, Father for this day when we celebrate the outpouring of your spirit that brought power and blessing on your first disciples. We pray that the same spirit will be in us and among us at this time to enable us to hear and receive your word that we may faithfully follow you and to the honor of your name. Amen. As we've said, today is Pentecost Sunday, one of the highlights of the church's calendar. Before we take a look at what happened on that great day, I want to look at the aspects of when and where. Now, you may think these are rather incidental, but I found that there are some details often overlooked that can really add to our appreciation of that day, that truly amazing, unique, and transforming day in God's calendar. And one further thing that makes today this day of Pentecost special is that it coincides with the Feast of Shavuot. Mostly, they don't happen on the same date, for the same reason that Easter and Passover don't normally coincide. But back in New Testament times, Pentecost and Shavuot were just different names for the same holiday. Pentecost is a Greek name based on the number 50, and the Jewish name Shavuot means weeks. Both names reflect the fact that the date for this holiday was determined by counting seven weeks from another holiday that fell at the time of the Passover. 
Now, occasionally I do some teaching for a group of students at my church back in Oxford in the UK. Usually this group includes one person who has been to theological college or at least maybe to Bible school. And I like to pose to them this question. Which of the biblical feasts corresponds to Easter Day? Now, as you might expect, I get the, the reply I usually get is Passover. And my response is, not really, because Passover actually corresponds to Good Friday. What most people don't know, including many Bible college students, is that Easter, the day of resurrection, corresponds to the Feast of First Fruits, which was the offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest during the week of unleavened bread. The fulfillment of this is that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And if that's a new thought to you, it will be well worth your while reading Paul, Paul's explanation of this in 1 Corinthians 15. But the aspect I want to note here is the day when this happened. In Leviticus chapter 23 in the Torah, we have laid out in sequence all the seven original biblical feasts. Actually, the phrase appointed times is probably a more accurate way of describing them because not all of them are actually feasts. One is a fast. This is what is recorded about this feast of first fruits that I mentioned. The Lord instructs Moses to say, when you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Notice that last point. The priest will wave it on the day after the Sabbath. The natural way to understand Sabbath in this context is as the weekly Sabbath, the seventh day of the week. So what this is saying is that this Feast of first fruits will always be on the day after the Sabbath that follows Passover. In other words, the first day of the week, which we call Sunday. Now let's read on a further few verses from that same chapter about the subsequent Feast of Weeks. Now I think we can show this on here so you can follow it more closely. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the waver offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of finest flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. So this is just to make clear that the Feast of Weeks comes precisely seven weeks after that first offering of the first fruits of the barley harvest, and hence should always be on a Sunday. 
Now, it can be rather confusing having two festivals, both of them called first fruits. The first one is the first fruits of the barley harvest, and the second one is the first fruits of the wheat harvest offered by the priests as two loaves. But those of you who are familiar with the Jewish calendar will know that in practice, the feast of first fruits falls on a fixed day in the Hebrew calendar, which is the 16th of Nisan, rather than on the first day of the week. This is because the Pharisees interpreted the Sabbath mentioned in Leviticus in a different way, and their view has prevailed to this day. But in the year that Jesus died, the Jewish practice and what I see as the original intention came together such that the feast of first fruits fell on a Sunday. That obviously became a fixture in the church's calendar with the day of Pentecost on the seventh Sunday after that. Also in the Jewish calendar, the period of seven weeks between those two feasts is called the counting of the Omer. Now, Omer is the Hebrew word for sheaf, as in the sheaf of barley that was offered by the priest. And the counting starts from 1 to 49 on the day after that feast day. Now, there's nothing wrong with the idea of counting since the passage in Leviticus instructs them to do it. But I think we can appreciate something of the sense of anticipation that Jesus had if we think of counting down rather than counting up. In the late 1960s, I, together with millions of other people, watched the launching of the Apollo space rockets live on television. There was a real sense of drama and anticipation as the countdown reached its last stage. And as you would expect, all the kids and some of the adults joined in when it, when it got to 10, you know, 10, 9, 8, and so on. Jesus, of course, knew what was going to happen on the coming day of Pentecost. Actually, in Acts chapter 1, he says to the disciples, in a few days, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. I wonder whether he sensed in his spirit an increasing longing to be with his father and all the angels as that day approached. What we know is that Jesus continued to appear to his disciples over 40 days, encouraging and teaching them. Then with 10 days to go, he ascended to join the heavenly crescendo for the remaining countdown. Now, I appreciate that's not very sophisticated theology, but it maybe it helps us to see that the approaching of this memorable and unique day of Pentecost a little bit more from heaven's point of view. Turning to Acts chapter two, we read, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. We are told they were all together sitting in a house. Now, was this house the upper room mentioned in the previous chapter where the group of 120 disciples would gather to pray? 
I'm pretty sure that's the view taken by the majority of Christians, as well, it seems, as the majority of theologians and Bible students. I have a five-volume New Testament commentary at home. It's published by a, a respected Christian publishing house and written by a group of evangelical scholars. It's well-written and illustrated, and I'd recommend it. But this is how it sums up the first few verses of Acts chapter 2. It says, The recipients of the Spirit were empowered for witness and began immediately by magnifying the greatness of God. Leaving the upper room and moving into the streets, the disciples continued to speak and attract a large crowd. Now, I am convinced, for several reasons, this is not what happened. They weren't in the upper room. They were, they were definitely somewhere else when the sound of a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting. The house they were in was not just any old house, even if it had a big room. It was the house of God. In other words, the temple. There are many reasons to support this, and I'll give you a couple of the obvious ones, as well as what I think is actually the most important one. Firstly, the numbers. Pentecost was one of the three pilgrim feasts, together with Passover and Tabernacles when the scriptures required all males to appear before the Lord God. In effect, this meant that at those three festivals, Jerusalem was absolutely overflowing with hundreds of thousands of extra visitors. The walled city was full of buildings and narrow streets, at least by our standards. The only open spaces where many thousands of people could gather was in or around the temple precinct. Secondly, it wasn't in the upper room because of what the disciples were doing in the days running up to Pentecost. In the account of the ascension that we read from the end of Luke's gospel, we read this. While Jesus blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So if in those 10 days between the ascension and up to Pentecost, the disciples were continually in the temple blessing God, then come the day of Pentecost when they are required to come before the presence of the Lord in the temple, where do you expect they will be? There's really only one answer to that. And thirdly, and the, the key, this is the key reason, because what it represented was so important to God. This day, like many other aspects of God's redemption, was planned from the foundation of the world. It was not just that it should make maximum impact so that thousands would be baptized into the kingdom that day, but much more because it was right 
to publicly honor the life and the sacrifice of his son, as well as to show the immense grace and power of the Holy Spirit to as many people as possible at the same time. Consider this. Pentecost is a one-day festival, whereas the other two main festivals, Passover in the spring and, and Tabernacles in the autumn, are both eight days. God created a festival that was linked to the first fruits of the harvest, but was for just one day. And its prophetic fulfillment that we celebrate today would happen at a certain time on just one day in history. It wasn't like a film premiere that has multiple showings over a day and maybe several days in a week. No, you had to be there at around nine o'clock in the morning on that very day. And if you were there, something happened that would, without a shadow of doubt, grab your attention because suddenly there came from heaven the sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house. The temple built by Herod was not only impressive, it was very big. He basically doubled the size of the Temple Mount area such that tens of thousands of people could easily gather in that place. And the sound of the violent wind filled the whole house of God. Having got the attention of something like 50,000 people, he then ensured they were looking in the right direction because what looked like tongues of fire separated and came down and rested on the heads of each of the disciples. To borrow a phrase used by the Apostle Paul, this was not done in a corner. This was done in a way such as to get the full attention from the maximum number of people. Now, hopefully you are persuaded that these events happened in the temple, but you may still be curious why Luke uses the word temple at the end of his gospel, but in this passage in Acts 2, he uses the word house. Well, um, the reason is probably to do with the fact that Luke was copying from an eyewitness account written in Hebrew. And in Jerusalem, Jews would refer to the house of God simply as the house. And even today, the Temple Mount is referred to as Ha-Habait, the hill of the house. And if you have to ask whose house it is, you probably shouldn't be there. Luke simply did a word-for-word translation in the style of the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible done about 200 years earlier. Anyway, now let's turn to what happened. And verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now saying that they were all together in one place conveys more than a sense of unity, and that was certainly there. It implies they were physically together and intentionally so. It would have been very easy for a group of that size, around 100 plus, to get separated in the swirling crowds on the Temple Mount unless they had a plan. And in the days before Pentecost, I'm sure that Peter and the other disciples 
had a strong sense that something big was going to happen. Not least because Jesus said, in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they probably didn't understand what that meant, but it sounds pretty big. As a result, they would have been through the ritual baths that surround the Temple Mount as soon as possible, even before the day started at sundown. So as to spend the night together praying and listening to the scripture being read. Subsequent chapters in Acts suggest, suggested they'd like to meet in Solomon's portico, which is towards the southeast corner. And since that would give them shade for the most of the day, actually, I think these were probably the best seats in the house. So that's why they wanted to be there. Overnight, and especially from dawn onwards, this Temple Mount would have been steadily filling up. By nine o'clock in the morning, everyone who wanted to be there would be there. And then it happened. The roaring wind and tongues of fire. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. This, this temple built by Herod the Great was certainly an amazing construction, but it lacked certain things, notably the Ark of the Covenant, and with that, the Shekinah, the visible presence of the glory of God. Also missing was the Urim and Thummim that was used by the high priest to inquire of the Lord. And there is no record that the fire from heaven fell on the altar of sacrifice as it did on the altar of Moses, Moses' tabernacle and when Solomon dedicated the first temple in Jerusalem. But on this Pentecost, something happened to change all of that, all of that stuff that was missing from the temple and the time of Jesus. The fire from heaven came, not on the altar, but on a group of 120 disciples. In this community, God would be present by his spirit, and he would direct their leaders as they sought his guidance. That was a promise that Jesus gave them. An association between the timing of the Feast of Shavuot and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai is invariably made in Jewish sources that comment on this feast. This association is not made explicit in scripture, but in later rabbinic writings. However, there is some evidence that this link may have been understood before the time of Jesus. It certainly makes for interesting parallels as well as contrasts. On Mount Sinai, the Lord comes down in the midst of clouds, thunder and lightning. This is in Exodus 19. And he writes the law on tablets of stone. At Pentecost, there's a sound of a thundering wind and the Holy Spirit descends in tongues of fire. And this same Holy Spirit writes the law on hearts of flesh. The result of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that the disciples were empowered to speak 
and glorify God in the local languages of the pilgrims from around the Roman Empire and from further afield. Those from the west and the north of Jerusalem spoke Greek, and those from further east spoke Aramaic. But what really got their attention was hearing their own local language. Luke gives us a list of countries roughly from east to west. It's more of a representative list of the Jewish diaspora rather than an exhaustive list. But what is striking and actually quite deliberate is the allusion to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 10 gives the air in, in Genesis gives the area around the Mediterranean where the people groups descended from Noah eventually settled. And chapter 11 that we heard earlier is God's response to the pride of the nations that wanted to make a name for themselves. God confounded their language and scattered them across the face of the earth. Now the result of Pentecost is that the Jewish pilgrims would return to their homes that year or maybe the following year, taking with them the news of Jesus, the resurrected Messiah. And the countries they returned to represented to a large extent the same area as the extent of the nations in Genesis chapter 10. The scattering of the nations at Babel in Genesis 11 was seen primarily as a judgment on the ambition of rebellious mankind. But Pentecost showed that by the power of the Spirit, the barriers of language and distance were no barrier at all. Just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples this final command. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The disciples' understanding of Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria was clear enough, though they needed quite a nudge to get beyond Jerusalem. But their understanding of the ends of the earth would have been informed by the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10. What's interesting is that there is one place mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 that is beyond the area covered by the list of nations and peoples in Acts chapter 2. And that is Tarshish, which is usually taken to be in the far west of the Mediterranean, probably in southern Spain. This means that to fulfill the command that Jesus gave, the gospel would have to be taken to Tarshish in the far east of the Mediterranean. And this thought is very likely to be behind Paul's ambition to take the gospel to Spain, which he mentions in a letter to the Christians in Rome. He says, I have been longing for many years to visit you. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. 
And the church fathers tell us, and it makes sense in other ways, that he did achieve that. He achieved his journey to, to, to Spain and then returned into other parts of the Mediterranean. For my final thought, I want to take you to an image in Ezekiel 47, and we've sung about this already in our first song this morning. In this vision, Ezekiel sees water trickling out from the threshold of the temple. It flows eastwards through the desert down to the Dead Sea. After a certain distance, it becomes ankle deep. Then further along, it's knee deep. It then becomes waist deep. And after about two kilometers, Ezekiel says, it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. As well as miraculously increasing as it flowed through the desert, it flows down to the lowest point on earth and brings life to the Dead Sea. In fact, wherever the river flows, everything will live. I see in this a picture of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. Though impressive for the people present, on the global scale, it was just a trickle. But soon it increased and became an unstoppable river. Ezekiel then provides this description, and you will recognize this. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. This is the river of God that sustains us. But Jesus said, it is also the river that flows out from us. Remember he said, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. We have received freely, so let's freely give. And may that be especially true for the spirit for where the river flows, everything will live. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for that day, Lord. Thank you for the transformation it brought to your people. Thank you that that river has flowed and increasing to flow throughout thousands of years, Lord. And we bless you for this day that we can meet in your name by the power of your spirit and be transformed like the disciples in that, in that story. Lord, we, we bless your name and give you the glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. 
You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.